today, and I hope you do. If you can open with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 is where we're going to be today. And welcome to week five of a series that has us walking through the Apostles' Creed, a statement of faith that reflected what the Apostles believed, what they taught. And if you remember kind of where we've been, the Apostles' Creed is a Trinitarian creed, meaning there's a small section devoted to the Father, a large section devoted to the Son, another section small devoted to the Holy Spirit. We said a few weeks ago of the 109 words in the Apostles' Creed, 69 of them occur in the section relating to Jesus. So 63% of the Apostles' Creed is about Christ. Um, It's pretty telling. It shows us that it all centers on Him and what He has done for us. And this morning we come to the subject of the cross And the phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And just think about this. The the death of Jesus Christ for our sins stands as one of the most perplexing, yet at the same time the most beautiful events in the history of of humanity. The, The cross is still the dividing line between sin and salvation, between judgment and forgiveness, and between hostility and peace with God. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have been to um, Blue Ridge Parkway recently? So, uh, so how, how many ever? Okay, we'll, we'll go with ever. But if you've driven through the Blue Ridge Parkway recently, you might have seen a sign that read Eastern Continental Divide. It's a line that marks the eastward and westward slopes of our continent. And what that means is this. Raindrops that fall um, even an inch to the west of the divide will um, flow westward through the Mississippi River. Those that fall to the east go all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. So just, just think about this. Two little raindrop friends are falling together. They're having a great conversation. They are friends from the beginning of whenever they started falling. They, they um, land one inch apart And one ends up in the Gulf of Mexico, and one ends up in the Atlantic Ocean, thousands of miles apart. And just just think about that. Just one inch, just just literally landing one inch apart, can make such a huge, huge difference. And the reality that we come to this morning, the cross, as I said before, is the dividing line in eternity. A line that dictates the eternal destination of every single person in this world. Anyone who, anyone who lands on the other side of the cross, regardless of how close they are, will suffer an eternity, eternal um, eternity away from the presence of the Lord. The cross is the dividing line between hostility and peace with God. So just think about that. And then think about this. Every religion... Um, has symbols which attempt to capture either the essence of the ideology of that religion, the, their philosophy, their, their foundation of, of what defines them. And just, just think about this. Buddhism um, often uses a lotus flower. I'll let you look that up as to why. Um, modern Judaism uses the Star of David. Um, you have Islam that uses the crescent and the star. Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, are recognized by a watchtower. The symbol of Mormonism is Angel Moroni. Um, and all of these symbols have... Uh, emotional power and meaning because they point to something else behind the symbol. And of course, what we know as the children of God, as people on this side of, of Christ's coming, is that the precious and revered symbol of Christianity is the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Yet think about this. What is the message of the cross? And I think we would probably have a lot of answers and probably heard so many different answers. And many of them are, are true, and we could highlight many of them. But I, I came across a quote this week from, from Bob Coughlin that I, I love. And it says this, The cross ultimately points not to the greatness of our worth, but to the greatness of our sin. Let me, let me say that again. The cross ultimately points not to the greatness of our worth, but the greatness of our sin. The cross sets us free from the misguided self-love to passionately love the one who redeemed us. In the cross, we find a perfect reconciling of God's blazing holiness, holy justice, incomprehensible wisdom, omnipotent power, and unfathomable love. The cross stands for all that was accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let me just lay our need before us this way. If every single one of us in this room had the wisdom of Solomon, the patience of Job, and I know I'm stretching it um, for all of us, but if we had that, if we had the humility of, of Moses, the strength of Samson, the obedience of, of Abraham, the compassion of Joseph and forgiving his brothers, the tears of Jeremiah, the heart of David, even if we had the greatness of John the Baptist, if we had all of that, we would still need the cross of Jesus Christ. So if we had all of that, I mean, what an amazing checklist that would be. We would still need the forgiveness of Jesus. So what we're going to do this morning is we're not going to spend time just going over the facts of the crucifixion. Um, the point of this message is not for us to endure a message about the cross. Um, the point of this message is for us to see the, the results um, for us as we think about the fact that Christ himself endured the cross. So we're not just enduring another message about the cross. We're looking at what comes to us because Christ endured the cross for us. And what comes to us is altogether glorious. So I want us, with deep conviction, we're going to stand together, we're going to recite the creed, and then again and again and again, we're going to let the creed point us to the authority of the word of God that's before us. So we're going to recite the creed together, and then we're going to read Matthew 27. And we've got a little bit of reading um, to get through today. So join me as we recite the creed together. Let's pray that we read this and recite this with deep conviction. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now if we look at Matthew chapter 27 together, we're going to begin reading in verse 11. And it says this. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. 
Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See it to yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand, right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hell, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with their scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this day, this dividing line of, of all of history, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, just help us today, Lord, just to see our need for the cross like never before. Lord, help us to Rejoice in the cross, Lord, and help us to just humbly, humbly find ourselves beneath it. But Lord, as we're going to see in a few minutes, there is no place for pride beneath the cross. So humble us today. 
Speak to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I just want you to just think with me on a few things. So as we think about what we just read, is there, is there beauty in an electric chair? Or is there glory in a half-naked man hanging on a cruel cross? You know, when we think about the cross today, do we really think about a bloody tree raised up on a hill? You know, when we think about a cross, we wear crosses around our necks. We have them hanging in our homes. We place them in our, our churches and all of those things because, of course, they are the symbol of redemption for us. But for the people of Jesus' day, the cross had the same significance as an um, electric chair. So just think of wearing a, an electric chair around your neck and people saying, why? I mean, that would be the picture in that day of what we do today. And crucifixion, of course, was invented by the Persians around 500 B.C. And then, of course, it was perfected by the Romans. In the days of Jesus, crucifixion was reserved for the most horrendous criminals. And even some of the worst Roman criminals were beheaded as opposed to being crucified. Um, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus um, called crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. The ancient Greek philosopher Cicero asked that decent Roman citizens um, not only not even think about the cross, but never speak about um, the cross because it was too disgraceful of a subject for decent people. Yet, Jesus thought about the cross, he spoke about the cross, and he embraced and endured the cross. So this morning, what we're going to do is we've got a lot of slides and points to get to, but we're going to unpack together four truths when it comes to the cross of Christ. And this picture of suffering under Pontius Pilate, being um, crucified, dead, and we're going to get to the buried part that's coming up Friday, but we just unpack this picture of the cross. So the first thing I want us to look at together would be this, the first truth, the responsibility for the cross. So the responsibility for the cross. I want to begin this morning by focusing on who killed Jesus, who was ultimately responsible for his death. And just think about it um, this way, and there's a, two ways we can think about it. First of all, responsibility could lie um, in man's sinful plotting. So it could lie on the shoulders of, of man and the, the sinful shoulders of man. When we think about what we just read, we hear a crowd crying, let him be crucified. We, we see Pilate and, and his pride and, and um, not not following what he knew or thought to be true. We see the soldiers crucifying all of these things. We hear the chief priests yelling and screaming. And we know that the responsibility for the death of Christ could fall on the shoulders of man. Responsibility could be placed with the people of Israel. It was the Jewish crowd that was shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The responsibility could be placed on the religious leaders who wanted him dead. They wanted him away from him. He was taking away their business and they wanted him gone. Responsibility could lie with, with Pilate. I mean, think about him. He knew that Jesus was innocent, but he was unwilling to act upon that because something else was more important to him. And what was more important to him was keeping his job. So because of that, Pilate ignored his conscience, he ignored the good advice from his wife, and he failed to recognize truth even when truth was standing right in front of him, all for political advancement, all because he did not want to give up his political seat. There's a lesson in that, but we won't cover that one today. Um, 
responsibility could also be put on the Roman soldiers. I mean, think about it. It was the Roman soldiers who drove the nails in Jesus' hands and feet. It was a Roman spear that pierced his side. Roman's ha Roman hands played a very prominent role in the actual death of Christ. And then, of course, responsibility could be placed on the whole race of sinful people, meaning all of us. It was our sin that held him there. So the responsibility could lie in many different ways with mankind, or as we said, the man's sinful plotting. But then second of all, responsibility does lie in God's sovereign pleasure. Responsibility does lie in God's sovereign pleasure. When we think about Isaiah 53.10, my version says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Some of your versions say it pleased the Lord to crush him. And here's what we know. Ultimately, the death of Jesus Christ was not a tragic accident um, in the midst of his earthly life, but rather it was a, the climax of a deliberate, deliberate plan in the council of heaven that was decided upon before the creation of the world. So the cross was the work of God. The cross was even the pleasure of God. And scripture emphasizes over and over and over again that the death of Christ was appointed, ordained by God himself. Even Romans 3, 24 and 25 declares in Jesus Christ whom God put forward. So God put Jesus forward as a payment for our sins. This was God's gracious doing. Yet before we move on, let me just address something that sometimes we don't think about. And that is this. It was not necessary for God to save us. Meaning God didn't have to save us. God could have left us in our sin, under his judgment, and God could have been just in doing it. He could have been completely just in doing it, but I'm so thankful for those two words in the Bible, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy and grace, when we were in sin, by grace we have been saved. So we see this amazing picture, the responsibility for the cross was God's responsibility for his son to come. But then second of all, let's focus on the, the revelation of the cross. What is the cross revealing to us? So the, the cross is not just a redemptive object. The cross is also a revealing object. And what it reveals to us is three different things that we're going to um, kind of unpack and then so much more that we're not. But first of all, the cross is revealing to us the, the holiness of God. The cross reveals to us that God is holy. And we think about, and we know Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I really don't know if it's possible for us to grasp the central drama of the Bible until we feel the tension and know the truth that the cross of Jesus Christ is about God's holiness. And this might seem strange to us that a place of blood, a place of suffering, a, a place of torment could be about about holiness, but the cross answers the question, the fundamental question, how can a holy God be reconciled to an unholy people? That's the question. How can, or how can an unholy people be reconciled to a holy God? And then the, the question demands this, this one. How can a relationship between a holy God and an unholy people be restored without some gross act of injustice? Because if God just says, I'm just going to wink at their sin and just ignore their sin and act as if it didn't happen, that would mean that God is unjust. 
So sin must be punished. So the, the cross displays both the holiness of God, it displays his abhorrence with sin. How hateful, just think about this, how hateful must sin be for God to punish it at the cost of his own son? How terrible must sin be for God to punish it at the cost of his own son? Yet the problem that sometimes we have is that we view God as the old grandfather figure that even though he doesn't like what we're doing, he winks at us, pats us on the back, and sends us on our way. Yet the cross shows us just how much God values holiness and justice. So the cross reveals the holiness of God. Second of all, the cross reveals the love of God. So we don't, we don't want to bypass that. The cross is about love. The Bible says in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The God that we rely on, the God that we trust in, knows what suffering is all about. Not merely because God knows everything, but, but even more, God knows it through experience. Did you know that we have something, brothers and sisters, that Job didn't have in, in what he went through and what he endured? We have something so much greater than what Job had when he walked through difficulty. And here's what we have. We have Christ crucified. We have Christ crucified. And I don't think we, we get that of, of how great of a deal that, that is for us, but we, we have that. And I pray that we, we hold to that amazing picture but here's this thing we must understand that when there seems to be no evidence in front of us that God loves us there will always be evidence behind us in the cross of Jesus Christ that he loves us I love the words of J.C. Ryle who said would I know the length and the breadth of God the Father's love towards a sinful world where shall I see his love I looked at the cross of Christ I might sometimes fancy that God the Father is too high and holy to care for such miserable, corrupt creatures as we are, but I cannot, I dare not think it when I look at Christ's suffering on Calvary. Brothers and sisters, look to the cross and you'll find love there. Look to the cross. If you don't feel God's love in what you're going through, if it doesn't seem like it's right before you in this moment, look back at the cross and you will find his love. You, you will find it. So the cross is revealing the love of God. And then third, the cross is revealing the wrath of God. Maybe not what we want to talk about, but the, the great sorrow of the cross was not just physical pain that he endured, although he endured physical pain. It wasn't just the rejection of man, although he, he was rejected by those who he loved and cared for. The greatest sorrow of the cross was that the wrath of God was poured upon Christ as he experienced separation from God. For the first time in Christ's whole entire life, he was separated from God the Father. And so what we know is that the death of Christ took place in darkness. We read about in verse 45 from the sixth hour, which is noon, um, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out, as we know, interpreted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For six hours. So Good Friday coming up this Friday, starting at, at 9 a.m. all the way to 3 p.m. For six hours, Jesus hung on the cross. The first three hours, Jesus hangs in the view of the world that rejected him. The last three hours, um, he hangs in darkness. So darkness covers the earth from noon until 3 p.m. Think about this. In the opening scene of Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' birth is marked by a supernatural light. 
um, that, that lights the way for um, the wise men to get to the manger. And yet, in an interesting contrast, the death of Christ is marked by a supernatural darkness that accentuates and shows us what is happening or what was happening at the cross. For it was during those three hours, those three hours of darkness, that Jesus was made sin for us and that the wrath of God was poured upon him. In fact, it has been said that whenever you combine darkness, thirst, remember Jesus saying, I thirst, isolation. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you at? And then you combine all of those things and then you also combine God's wrath you have a picture of hell. So Jesus endured hell for us. And think about the book of Daniel. Think about the fiery furnace. So we all know that story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, we, we know that. Or if you have um, kids or grandkids and VeggieTales, Rackshack and Benny. So either, either way we could go with that. But we can say, according to the picture of Daniel, that God may not always choose to deliver us from the fiery trials that we walk through, but he will always be there with us in the midst of every fiery trial. So we can say that only once has that not been true. Only once. And that was when our Lord bore our sins upon the cross and suffered the wrath of God and the rejection of God in our place. He suffered that so that we would never have to live apart from God. Oh, may we rejoice in that. Oh, may we move our hearts in, in some way today, that what the cross is revealing to us. So we, we have that, that picture. Then, then third, we have the reproach of the cross. So we don't want to miss the humiliation um, that Christ endured on the cross. We don't want to miss what he was going through. We don't want to miss that reality. You know, many years ago, um, the Passion of the Christ came out and it showed us a, a gruesome scene of the cross. And it, it was very shocking and it was hard to watch. But let me just tell you, brothers and sisters, what Christ experienced was worse. Was worse. As bad as that was to watch, what Christ really went through was absolutely worse. And think about what he, he endured. Christ endured, first of all, the pain of the cross. The cross was not something that, that was joyful and was without pain where God took that away. No, he, he was taken to a place called the place of the skull, and he was crucified there. Nails in his hands and feet. In his book, The Life of Christ, Frederick Farrar writes these words, The unnatural position made every movement on the cross painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throb with incessant anguish. The wounds, inflamed by exposure, gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially at the head and stomach, became swollen and oppressed. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pain of burning and racing thirst. And all of these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety which made the prospect of death itself, of death at whose approach man usually shudders most, bear the aspect of an exquisite release. So what he's saying is this, what people had to endure on the cross made them want death. Made them long for death. So what we know is on the cross, the only way a person could breathe is by pushing up on the nails that were driven in their feet. They would push up in order to gasp or get air into their 
lungs. But eventually, of course, they would drown in their own blood. The Romans had somehow dialed in to the most excruciating, horrible way that a person could die in the sight of people who were cheering it on as it happened. Christ endured the pain of the cross. Secondly, Christ endured the the shame of the cross. Don't miss all that was going on at the cross as the, the chief priests mocked him. People mocked him saying he saved others. He can't save himself. And of course, he couldn't save himself because he was saving us. But all of these things, think about these words. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if God even desires him. Let God do Think about the shame. There was shame and humiliation associated in every aspect of what Christ went through. And let me take it a step further. He was experiencing your shame and mine. It was my shame that he experienced. It was my pain that he took on and went through. Jesus endured it, shame, mocking, insults, even temptation. Maybe we don't think about Christ enduring temptation on the cross. You don't think there was temptation when people said, if you trust in God, then why is this happening to you? If you're the son of God, why why is this your end? The temptation there, Christ endured that. And then third, Christ endured the curse of the cross. So when when a Jewish person would think about the cross, they would often, or think about hanging somewhere, they would think about Deuteronomy chapter 21. It says this, If a man has committed a sin, deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, he who is hanged is accursed of God. So in the Jewish mind, anyone who hangs on a tree, that was a sign that God had cursed you. You were cursed by God. Galatians 3.13 takes it a step further when it tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse, get this, for us. Christ became a curse for us. The glorious picture here, brothers and sisters, is every single one of us in this room was justly under the curse of God because of our sin. We were justly awaiting the wrath of God to come and to be poured upon us because, get this, hear this please, we deserved it. We deserved it. And at the last moment before that wrath hit us, Jesus came and stood in our place between us and the wrath of God. And he pulled a cup out and every last drop of that wrath was poured into a cup. He drank it all. He turned the cup upside down and said, it is finished. All of that, brothers and sisters, done for us. Let's not miss this. Don't miss any picture here. The responsibility, the revelation, the reproach of the cross. Don't miss this. But then that leaves us with this. The last truth is our response to the cross. What will our response? This is the dividing line, brothers and sisters of eternity. What will our response be? First of all, will we pridefully reject our Need for the cross? There are so many people, and I'm not judging, I'm just stating a fact and truth. There's so many people who play games at the foot of the cross. They play games. They play games and they think that their knowledge of the events means something. And yes, we, we need to be knowledgeable about what takes place. But here's the thing. If all we have is a head knowledge that is void of a heart transformation, then we don't um, know what we should know about the cross. Brothers and sisters, we, we can't 
pridefully reject the cross or our need for it. There was a time in my life where I confessed that I could not save myself. And based on what Christ has done for me, I was saved. But there is not a day that goes by that I don't need the cross of Christ. And what he gives to me through it. So will we, will we pridefully reject or secondly, will we humbly see our only hope upon the cross? That Christ is our only hope. As I said earlier, there is no place for pride beneath the cross. You know what the cross does? It slays our pride. If we come before the cross pridefully and see it the way we should see it, it will slay us of our pride. It will bring us into complete and total humility. In closing, what I want to do is I want to show us the difference between these two responses by looking at two verses. I'm going to put them on the screen. Um, It's Matthew 27, verses 24 and 25. And just listen to this. And we just read it, but it says this. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And before anybody feels sorry for Pilate saying, oh, poor Pilate, he knew what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. And then says this, and all the people answered After Pilate said, you see to it, you see to his blood, all the people said, his blood be on us and on our children. And let me just show you a picture of pride. Let his blood be on us. We'll suffer the consequences for his blood, and not just us. Let it be on our children, too. Their unbelief and their sin had led them to an ultimate act of defiance and rejection against the only Savior of sinners in the world. And their pride had led them not just to bring condemnation upon themselves, but also upon their children. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. Let the blood of God himself be on our kids. Let me say this without trying to get... Without trying to be emotional, and I, I, I might be emotional. We live in a world where every day parents who claim the name of Jesus Christ are saying the same thing and modeling the same thing before their children by showing absolutely zero need for Christ in their lives at all. And what we are saying is, Christ, we don't need you, and our kids don't need you. And there might come a day where God opens the eyes of their parents and those parents say, my kid needs you. And yet the example that they set might be a, a, a barrier for their children. Brothers and sisters, that is absolute pride for us to stand and say, God, we reject you. And not only do we reject you, may our kids reject you. That kind of pride should make us shudder. But let me show you, alongside that pride, let me show you a picture of humility. And this is going to be weird, so please follow me. It is with that same declaration, yet with a different heart, that we who are here today that have found in Christ, our cry has also been, let his blood be on us. 
Let his blood be on us. And we are not crying that defiantly. We are crying that desperately. We need his blood. So therefore, let his blood be on us with gratitude and with hope for those who depend wholly on what Christ has done for us. Jesus, let your blood be on us. Let it cover us. Let it flow over us. Let it wash us of our sins. Let your blood, Jesus, be on us us therefore we proclaim his death we rejoice in his death we're about to do in just a moment we remember his death and we humbly come before god through that death declaring jesus in my place jesus in my place i pray today in this moment that there would be a sense of humility all across this room as we are in essence standing at the foot of the cross. And that God maybe in this moment is slaying us of pride, slaying us of self-sufficiency, slaying us of anything that is there that shouldn't be there as we stand beneath the foot of the cross focused on what our Savior has done for us. And maybe, maybe today would be the day that you would say, Jesus, let your blood be on me. For the first time, you would say, Jesus, save me. Let your blood be on me. And maybe others of us in here today would be a first time in a long time that we would say, Lord, your word tells us because of what Christ has done for us that if I confess, um, if I confess my sins, you are faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. What we are going to do now is we are about to enter into a time of invitation and consecration. And right after that, we are going to partake in communion. And I'm going to read a passage in, in just a moment. But that passage tells us that we must not, dare not come to this table in an inappropriate way. Now, granted, we are not coming to this table as if it's a, a, a dead ritual that we experience. No, no, no. This is not a dead ritual. We are celebrating what Christ has done for us, and we don't want to miss it at all. But we want to also come humbly. We want to come humbly, and we don't want to miss anything of what Christ has done for us. So I would encourage you, use the time that we're going to have in this invitation to, to seek the Lord. And as we saw a few weeks back, say, God, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Show me if there's any wicked way in me, God. For the sake of being able to come to your table in a way that I'm able to focus on you and you alone. So I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to pray and enter into this time. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. That he brought us into your family and he brought us into a family of faith. For the reason that we're able to be here today as a faith family is because of Jesus. Because of what he has done for us. Lord, help us not to think small thoughts concerning that. And I pray, Lord, for anyone in this room that is or will be in here today that doesn't know you. That you would help them for the first time a day to say, Jesus, let your blood be on me. Let your blood be on me, Jesus. Forgive me. Save me. For others of us, God, that have gone way too long without coming before you in our sin. And Lord, our relationship with you is the same, but our fellowship with you has been messed up, God. Help us to come before you today 
confessing our sin and trusting that you are the God who removes our sin as far as the east is from the west and you remember them no more. God, prepare our hearts for the ordinance that we're going to partake in in just a few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen.